in your New Testaments to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue a study that we began last Sunday in Ephesians. We'll, we'll start there considering the church and our responsibility, especially to the local church of which we are a part. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning and to be able to study together and worship together. You've been an encouragement to me. I hope that you've been encouraged and edified by the worship this morning and that it would be continually beneficial to you. I want our visitors to know that you are certainly our honored guests and we'd love to study the Bible with you. If you have any questions, let us know those questions after services and we'd love to discuss the reason for the things that we do here as we seek to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I did want to mention very quickly that uh, my girls are sick, so that's where Zoe is at home taking care of them. And to, to much of Aaron's points in Bible class, you know, couldn't do it without her. She's certainly uh, a joy for me and, and um, a great help to me, and she does a great job at home with the kids, but that's why they're not here today. And also, we're mindful, I think, of Steve. That's pretty um, understood this morning as uh, that happened last night. He went to the hospital with heart complications. We need to continue to keep him in our prayers. And I want you to refocus after um, this. I don't want us to, to miss our focus on the lesson. But Ronnie also had to go to the hospital in the middle of the Bible class period with a serious health uh, episode. So we've got plenty to, to be prayerful about. Go ahead and say some quick prayers on their behalf. Um, as we get into the lesson so that uh, God can be looking out for them. We know that they're in good hands. In Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes that God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. We discussed last week about how the church is certainly according to the eternal purpose of God. He mentions the fullness of the dispensation of the fullness of times. That is, in, in verse 10 of chapter 1, that all things would be gathered together in one in Christ. And that is certainly what the church fulfills in its purpose. In chapter 3, as we just had read, he is giving us all we need, fullness, that we could be the fullness of him to God's glory in the church. And so the church has a great purpose in the grand scheme of things. It is according to his eternal purpose there in chapter 3 of Ephesians and in verse 10 and 11. And we spoke at some length last Sunday about how the church is comprised of individuals. Not, not congregations, but individuals comprise the universal church of our Lord. He added to the church daily, Acts 2.47, those who are being saved. But we also noted the importance that the function and organization of the Lord's body is on the local level. And so we read verses like Romans 16 and verse 16, where Paul says the church is plural of Christ greets you. It's not a contradiction to Ephesians chapter four, where he says there is one body, as we just read in chapter one, that is this church. It is the fact that the universal church comprised of all the saved involves many individuals across the globe. And the way that the church is to function in order and effectively according to the eternal wisdom of God. And I think that we can appreciate that as we study his word and understand just how effective his plan is, is on the local level. And so we asked some questions last Sunday as we studied just by way of review. We looked at 
the fact that there is the universal church and that there's one body, the whole family of God, what is called the general assembly in Hebrews chapter 12, all who are saved, Christ is head, the head, one head of that one body. But we also asked the question about how we play a part in that one body. And we saw that the scripture tells us very clearly that the local church really fulfills that obligation and purpose of the church being the fullness of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 3 of Ephesians, that's spoken of in its various parts, how we are strengthened through his spirit in the inner man, and, and in that, the word of God strengthening that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. We're rooted and grounded in love and therefore can comprehend the love that Christ has for us as well. And in all of that, we're filled with his fullness to his glory in the church. But that, that happens on the local level. And I think that Philippians chapter 1, and especially in verse 11, really verse 9 through 11, is a good example of that particular point. Whereas we're filled with the fruits of righteousness, as our love abounds in knowledge and discernment, we are to the glory and praise of, of God. And notice it's by Jesus Christ. He fills us and, and therefore we bear fruit. As he says in John 15, without me you can do nothing. We cannot bear fruit without the Lord. He fills us to bear fruit to God's glory. That happens in a local church. He addressed Philippians to the elders or the bishops and the deacons, which are at Philippi. And so we asked an important question. Can I faithfully exist as a Christian? Faithfully exist separate and apart from the local church. And we noted a concept that some are convinced is scriptural of a floating membership where I'm not a member at any local group, but I float around from church to church. And and therefore, I, I really don't truly have any kind of accountability to any one eldership, can, can I exist that way? Because there's certainly members of the church universal who feel that that's proper. And I think what we demonstrated is that logically that can't be so. Because if it is proper, it is authorized, that means every single one of us can do it acceptably before God. But if everyone was doing that, where would there be a church to float to? And so something that has been stressed to me early on in my journey in preaching the gospel is that something that proves too much proves nothing at all. If, if it proves that everyone can be a floating member and therefore everyone's disjointed, then there would logically be no local church to float to. That really just proves nothing at all. It doesn't logically fit in the Scripture. The elders that are a part of this local structure designed by the wisdom of God and to His glory is among, they shepherd the church among them. And so we certainly understand that implies a locality of believers joined and knit together. We saw that in the example of Paul as he tried to join the disciples in Jerusalem. He saw that as an obligation and he wasn't going to avoid that obligation. And they had an obligation to vet him. Is he to be received? Is he in fellowship with God? And at first they didn't receive him. Barnabas verified his discipleship, his conversion, and his work for the Lord. So they did receive him, and he became a local member at Jerusalem, even though it was a short period of time. We saw that that progressed throughout his discipleship. As he even went from church to church, there were times where he was at a church 
for several years. And he was a member at that church. We saw that in Acts chapter 13 with the church that was at Antioch. He was in the church that was at Antioch and they sent him out. And he came back in chapter 14 and gave them a report of his work and stayed with them a long time. Phoebe is another example of local church membership. How she was a servant of the church in Centria. She was a member at Corinth. And yet she was traveling on business perhaps and was to be received by the church in Rome. But then we thought about how while we can't exist faithfully separate from the local church, so we must be joined to a local group of believers, what are my responsibilities? You might remember that there, there are various reasons why this question might be troubling for some, where some think that they're insignificant because they're not a preacher or an elder or a deacon or so on and so forth. They're not a Bible class teacher. And so they might feel insignificant, and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12. You shouldn't feel that way, because you've got a great part to play in the ministry. You need to figure that out, and you need to get to work. But also, sometimes there's so many little things that need to be done, and that I could be doing that I get overwhelmed, and I can become paralyzed. So I need to, I need to visit this person, I need to check in on this person, I need to take food to and I need to do this, that, or the other. I have this responsibility given to me by the elders and this responsibility, and I'm so overwhelmed I just break down and don't do anything. Maybe that's why some people feel like they're not playing their part in the church. But I think some of those things can be solved by understanding some more fundamental responsibilities that I have as a member of this local group of believers. Some things that if we get down and understand and are contributing to on an everyday basis, that all of these other things will be taken care of. And the first thing we looked at is that we need to mature in the faith. We looked at a passage in Ephesians chapter 4, which speaks to this at length, where the gifts Christ left for the church were apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers. But we noted that what they do is they equip the saints. They equip the saints. They equip the saints. They edify the saints, inform the saints, help each individual saint grow to maturity. And then there are two more prepositional phrases in verse 12. They equip the saints unto the work of ministry. So it's not that the, the people identified, the, the offices, if you will, the positions, if you will, in verse 11 that are identified are doing the ministering themselves. They are part of it, sure. But the saints... Every one of you that are sitting in the pews this morning are doing that ministering unto the edifying of the body of Christ. And you see a picture of that in Ephesians 4 where we come to that maturity of Christ, that perfect, uh, to a measure of the perfect stature of the fullness of Christ. And, and that means not immature, tossed about with every wind of doctrine, but instead speaking the truth in love. We all contribute in our spiritual growth and accountability that we provide one another to edify the body in love. There was a snapshot of that, if you will, in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, where the Spirit expressly speaks of an apostasy, and the way that that apostasy would be avoided is that Timothy does the work of, of an evangelist, fulfills his ministry, verse 6, instructs the brethren in these things. He'll be a good minister, nourishing good words of faith. But I want us to understand that this is really a an illustration of what we studied in Ephesians 4. Because Timothy is one of those positions that Ephesians 4 and verse 11 speaks about. But his very work described in chapter 4 is not isolated to him, 
but he takes heed to himself, like verse 16 says, and to the doctrine. He continues in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Timothy studies to know, but he studies to know to teach others so they can know. And they are taught to know so that they can stand for the truth. And they don't bite on those errors. And they stand resolute within the gospel of Christ, holding each other accountable, exhorting one another to make a stand for the truth. And so that apostasy won't come to a local church who has that kind of accountability. And so as we're here this morning, we all have a great role to fulfill. There's one other thing before we move on to the next point I wanted to make. In chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, we talked about how that message of error will spread like cancer. We asked the question, how are we going to stop that spread? Well, it starts in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2 where he tells Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And notice the first thing he mentions after that. The things that you have heard from, from uh, me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. One thing I failed to, to mention on our, Sunday, our, our sermon from last Sunday is that word men in verse 2 is the Greek word anthropos. And that's distinct from anair, which is specifically and exclusively male. He's saying men and mankind in general. And so that, that covers the entirety of a local church. It doesn't matter if, if you're a babe in Christ, if you're mature, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're a man, if you're a woman. These things are committed to the members of the Lord's body so that we can speak up when something's wrong. We can encourage each other in the right way. We can mature in the faith as an individual and thus contribute to the spiritual health and edification of the body. And so when you're studying your Bible lesson at home, you're doing your daily Bible reading, and you're meditating about what you read, you're studying it further, and you're digging deep, and you're, you're growing closer to Christ personally, that is a part of your work of this local body. And so when we neglect those things, it, don't think of it as if it's just affecting you and everyone else is okay. Because the church is broken down to its individual parts. We're members individually. That is the case. But your individual membership is also a member of me. We're members of one another. So it's not the faith of others that will make the local church strong. We need to think of it in this way. It is our own faith that will make the church strong. Or lack of faith that will make the church weak. I believe it was JFK who said, ask not what... Your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, we need to have that same thought about the church. Too often we find Christians thinking about how the eldership or the church isn't looking after them enough. I'm not being cared for enough, and woe is me. Maybe you're being neglected, and maybe that's wrong, and they need to take care of that. But we don't worry about that. We worry about responsibility. What, what am I doing for the body? What responsibilities am I taking care of? Because they're my responsibilities and no one else can take care of them. We need to mature in the faith. Secondly, and our first new point for this morning, and we've got four more, and don't worry, we're going to cover two more this morning. We're going to have another lesson on this subject. I think it's imperative we mature in the faith, and right along with that is keeping ourselves pure. We need to keep ourselves pure. That is not something I can accomplish for you. That's not something you can accomplish for the person sitting next to you. You take care of that yourself, but that is not to go without saying that your purity or lack of purity will drastically and dramatically affect the purity or impurity of the church. Too often there are those who think that as long as they're in agreement doctrinally with 
the church that they're a part of, that the other things they're doing in their day-to-day life are not important. I'm not, I'm not thinking on error. I'm not teaching error. I'm a part of what I know to be the sound church, the, the true church which belongs to Jesus. It's got a sound eldership. It's got sound preaching. It's got sound members. And, and I'm believing everything I'm hearing from the pulpit on a doctrinal level but there is impurity and immorality in their individual lives. They're not acting that way at the assembly, but they're cursing at work or at school. They're, they're consuming filthy entertainment on a day-to-day basis. Their mind is wandering off in impure ways. Maybe they are even just as much as a part of the world as you could be, but they are a four-hour Christian on Sunday and on Wednesday. But what we try to fool ourselves into thinking sometimes is that that's not of consequence to the church. And I think that if we opened a door which showed us just how much that does affect others, we might think twice about doing what we're doing if we're impure without the assembly. But we get ourselves into that thought that it's not affecting anybody else. That couldn't be further from the truth because the local church is comprised of It's individual parts coming together, and if one link to the chain is weak or impure, it's going to compromise the entire. We just studied in Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 25 about Christ's love for the church. He gave himself for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Think about Christ's death and just how much that took of Himself and of the Father in sacrifice. We just remembered it here this morning in the Lord's Supper. And we stress it all the time as we should about how much love He showed for us and what a great price was paid for our salvation. He purchased the church with His own blood. And then we kind of change directions And we start speaking of it as if that gives us the ability to continue to be the sinners that we once were and therefore do it without any worry because He paid the price for our souls. But I want to tell you, that's a cheap grace. And it's a a very impotent grace. It's not the grace of the New Testament. The grace of the New Testament is that Christ died because we could not save ourselves But that salvation is not just from the consequence of sin. It's from sin itself. You recognize that? In Romans, the sixth chapter, he doesn't just talk about the wages of sin is death and Christ's death freed us from death. He's talking about it freed you from slavery to sin. But there's some Christians, I think, who think about it in regard to the consequence. That I'm still in sin. I'm still sinning. I can't ever break free from that. But thank God that I'm not spiritually dead. It doesn't work that way. He gave His life to bring us into holiness and purity and cleanliness. And that takes a a diligence on our part and submission to accepting that grace through the Word of God. In 2 Peter 3, he uses some of the same words when he talks about the coming of Christ. And because these things are going to happen, the day is approaching near. What manner of conduct ought you to be in all holiness and godliness? Looking for the hastening of that day. We are those who purify ourselves. We do it with Christ's power, but only what He died for. This happened on an individual level. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is speaking about 
some things that pertain to, to an ungodly lifestyle which will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he starts to talk about the sin of sexual immorality. But you remember in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, he's not talking about the body here in regard to the body of Christ. He's talking about my body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Notice here, for you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And here we have it again. You have the universal church in Ephesians 5. He, he died and gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that she might be without spot and, and blemish, without wrinkle, but be holy and pure and clean. And then it's broken down to its individual parts. That means you. That means me. He died so that I can be pure. And and when I'm not seeking and pursuing purity, then I'm treating his sacrifice in a profane way. This is why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 22 to Timothy, an individual, don't lay hands on anyone hastily nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. I understand here he's talking about a an elder who may be sinning, and, and not unless you have two or three witnesses do you uh, receive a, a, a rebuke against him, but that you, you make sure you don't share in other people's sins in that regard. But it's very broad. Keep yourself pure. Don't share in other people's sins. And so Timothy has an individual responsibility to keep himself pure. So do we. In chapter 6 of that same epistle, he says, You, O man of God... Flee these things, these things that pertain to uh, the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil, and, and people pursuing the riches, they, they do anything to get them. You, you flee these things, but pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Sharing or refusing to share in sin and impurity affects the whole. And I think we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We know that leaven leavens the whole lump in a doctrinal matter. That if there's false doctrine and it festers, it's not dealt with, that that will affect other people and more and more will start going down that path of error. And error spreads like cancer. The same kind of phrase is used in 1 Corinthians 5, but he's not talking about error. He's talking about immorality. And we may think that if, a, if an individual who's a member of this congregation is involved in some blatant and disgusting form of immorality, there's no way that's ever going to affect me. I'll never stoop down to that level. But I want to tell you, you may not participate in that exact sin, but if that is persisting and not dealt with, then the sensitivities to any kind of sin are all of a sudden brought down. And we've become a little more hardened. And I may not go that far, but I may go a little further than I used to have thought. And, and that's how it affects us. Notice there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about this sexual immorality in verse 1 that's not even named among the Gentiles. A man has his father's wife. It is not even heard of among the Gentiles. That's how bad this is. But notice verse 2, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And here's the idea. We are so prideful in our state before God, he talked about it in chapter 4 and verse 8, you're already full, you have already, you're already rich, you've reigned as kings without us. Indeed, I wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. He talked about it in verse 21. 
He says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in spirit of gentleness? He said in verse 18, rather, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. And so they've got this idea, whatever it may be. Maybe it's because of the abundance of spiritual gifts they have in this congregation. Maybe it's because Paul is the one that established the church. But they have such an inflated view of themselves that they think this individual who has his father's wife being among them is not affecting them. That, that's his sin. We recognize it as a problem in his life. It's not touching the church, though. I'm not going to be involved in that. We're still good. We're full. We're rich. We're reigning as kings, he said in chapter 4 and verse 8. But he speaks about this withdrawing from this sexually immoral man for his sake, that his soul may be saved, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, verse 5. But then he says something else. There's another reason for church discipline. And I want us to stress the need for individual purity. He says, your glorying is not good in verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he's not just saying that because leaven is in the one lump, then the whole lump is leaven. You know, James said in James chapter 2, he said, do not commit adultery. And he said, he also said, do not murder. So if you, if you do not murder, but you do commit adultery, you've broken the law because they're both a part of that whole law. That's not really the idea here. He's not saying that the whole lump is leaven just because there's a little leaven in that lump. Leaven spreads. It, it pervades the entire lump. It's not just he's saying it's wrong that there's one sinner in the body. That's wrong in and of itself. You need to deal with that. He's saying that because he's there, it is having an effect on all the other members. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all going to be taking their father's wife. But here is a sin that is going unaddressed, is persistent in that body, and it is lowering the sensitivities of the congregation. It is encouraging immorality and unrighteousness. That one individual's impurity is affecting everyone else's impurity. And it may not be overnight, but it certainly is affecting it. He says, therefore, verse 7, Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. They purged the leaven out of the house before the Passover lamb was slain. And that's his point. He's already died, and you've still got leaven in your household. We need to think about that on an individual level as well. Their willingness to let such a sin go unaddressed, that man's unwillingness to live a pure and sanctified life inevitably would lead to a lax approach and to growing immorality among others. And so we need to keep ourselves pure. Your your Maintenance of your own purity, your refusal to dabble in sin, is going to affect this congregation positively. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaks about their need to, to continue to grow. And I want us to see how this really breaks down practically on an individual level. How, how do I keep myself pure? To what degree... Does, is that included as it will drastically affect others? In verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Finally, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
it's never okay to be stagnant or complacent. There's never a degree that you can grow to where you can't grow more. And that's the idea of abound more and more. It's a superlative. He's saying, you've already abounded. I want you to abound even more. You've already excelled. And that's beyond just doing good. You've excelled at something. You need to excel still more, as another translation renders it. But, but what do I excel in? Well, various things. Everything pertaining to the Word of God. There's something interesting he goes on to talk about. This is the will of God, verse 3. Your sanctification. Excel in sanctification. Sanctification means I'm set apart. Well, you need to be further set apart. You may be pure. You need to be further pure. And, and understand that significance. Excel still more seems to mean that they're already excelling. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Know that you should abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you should know how to possess his own vessels in sanctification and honor. The point in the text is that you are already sanctified. You are sexually pure. You are possessing your vessels in sanctification and honor. I want you to excel still more. I want you to abound more and more in that. How does that happen? I think we often think about purity, especially of a sexual nature. As binary, you're either pure or you're not pure. And maybe there's a sense in which that is certainly the case. But what Paul is saying is, you may be pure, you need to be even more pure. You may be sanctified, you need to be sanctified even more. You may be possessing your vessel, your body, in sanctification and in honor, but there is still more that you can do. He's not just talking about a promiscuous lifestyle you need to avoid. But there are... Many things which precede that promiscuity and that fornication. There are so many precautions to take in living a pure life before Christ. And if we are all heightened to that point of awareness, and we are willing to be extremely careful as individuals, that will affect how everyone else views sin and how everyone else leads their life. We don't tolerate filthy speech like in Ephesians 5 talked about. He says the fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be named among you. And then he talks about filthy speech and coarse jesting. And so if we're going to avoid members falling into sexual sins, all the members need to have this kind of purity which won't even participate in the thoughts and speech leading up to it. That's the kind of purity we're talking about in the church. Notice in Romans, the 13th chapter, when the Apostle Paul speaks about owing no one anything but to love one another, and in that is, is not committing adultery and murder, so on and so forth. He kind of progresses beyond to, to look at some other things which would fall into that category of avoiding because I'm loving each other. And he applies it to each individual. He says in Romans 13 and in verse 11, Do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. You, you've heard the sermon Brett uh, preached, Brett Hoagland, that's up in Missouri, live like you are dying. That's kind of the idea here in this verse. Live like tomorrow was when you meet Christ. Whether it's you die physically or He comes again, you live like tomorrow is the day. How would that change the way we live? How would that change how we viewed purity? So notice what he says in verse 12. The night is far spent. You've lived enough of your past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, he says in another place. The Peter does, that is. So cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. And I want us to notice here in verse 13. He gives some specific things, but there's a pattern. 
He says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and in lust, not in strife and in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And that's key. He's telling them, don't provide for the flesh. What does that look like to provide for the flesh? Notice those, those three groups of two. He mentions not in revelry or in drunkenness. Revelry is the greater. Drunkenness is the lesser. Drunkenness is intoxication with no degree. You're, you're intoxicated. You're either or you are intoxicated. Revelry is what comes along with intoxication. It's that carousing, a drunken carousal. And so don't even take the drink that would lead you to. Someone may say, I'm drinking, but I'm not revelry. I'm not involved in revelry. Purity demands that you abstain from the wine, period. He says lewdness and not in lust. Lewdness is coite, which means couch. It's a euphemism for the sexual act. And then lust is asolgeia, the lesser. It's everything that is unchaste and licentious that would lead to that sexual immorality, that fornication. And so I'm not in telling dirty jokes and entertaining myself with sexual themes and, and, and I'm loose about those kinds of things. I'm involved in uncleanness and thought and in action. He says both of these need to be taken away. Then he talks about strife and envy. And so you've got strife as quarrel and contention, which is, but envy is what led to that strife. So you see what we're saying here? That's providing for the flesh. And so a Christian does not try to argue with how far we can go a Christian asks the question, how do I get as far away from that as possible? And if we are all individually thinking like that and living like that and applying these principles, oh, you're doing a great deal for the church that meets here at 84th Street. But if you are trying to rationalize that this is not as bad as the world, I don't see how this is a big deal. My immodesty, how, how does that have anything to do with sexual impurity? Or, or me watching these movies and listening to this music, whatever it may be, I, I, I just don't see the connection and I'm going to continue to do it. And, and that kind of stubborn mindset is what will lead to that spread of ungodliness and immorality. And it may not take you as far as you think it could, but maybe the person you've influenced falls deeper and deeper into that pit. We owe each other in love, the devotion to personal purity, being an example to others, to heighten the sensitivity to matters of impurity, to, to help through our own example and our own dedication to purity, everyone see sin as God sees sin. That's what purity is. God is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And secondly, for this lesson, I think it's imperative that as we are maturing in the faith and we are keeping ourselves pure, that we possess the mind of Christ. And I specifically am referring to what we read of in Philippians, the second chapter, because this maturing in the faith is possessing the mind of Christ. Keeping ourselves pure is possessing the mind of Christ. But if we are merely intellectually advancing, if we are even just merely advancing, but I'm not possessing this kind of humility of service and foregoing of, of my own rights or what is that my best interest for the sake of another and in the way that Christ did, then this 
church is in danger still of division. There's a reason why when we hear of a church dividing and they say it wasn't even doctrinal, that that is, that is extra disgusting to us. Any division is bad. But in a division where no one was even standing in conviction for what they believed to be the truth and it was just over some silly matters, how much worse is that? And, and it all boils down to whether we possess this humble-mindedness as Christ possessed. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, if there is any consolation in Christ, have you ever been encouraged or comforted by Christ? That's what he's saying. If there's any comfort of love, do you receive comfort from the love that Christ has shown to you? If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, are you in communion and have that close relationship with God through the Spirit's teaching? Or are you benefiting from that? Are you rejoicing in that? If there is any affection and mercy, have you received and felt the affection of God in Christ? Do you understand the value of His mercy extended towards you? Well, if any of that is true, this is what He appeals to. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Having the same love of one mind. Why should I be like-minded with my brother or sister in Christ? Why, why should I be willing to, in humility, do what's best for them, even though i got some needs that need to be taken care of? Because I have received that kind of favor and that kind of love an expression from Christ. And, and He also gave it to them too. And I can make that connection that they're just as valuable as me. And insofar as I'm concerned, they're more valuable. So He applies it in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I want to tell you, this was tested a couple years ago, a year ago, however long it's been. 2020. The worst year, right? Where, where all of a sudden we, we're faced with this, this unprecedented thing, at least for our generation, our thinking, our experiences. And we're going to have to discern truth from liberty and opinion, matters of substance, from matters that really don't matter whatsoever. And, and I've got to decide whether I'm going to die on this hill. I'm convinced this is what we should be doing. Or I'm going to just... Yield to my brethren, because I don't want any trouble. It's not doctrine. It's not any morality in any decisions of that nature. They're matters of complete insignificance. Am I going to act to the service of another, or am I going to act in my own interest? This is the mind of Christ, verse 5. He was in the form of God, but he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. So he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Was that in his interest? Absolutely not. He was certainly looking out for our interest. This is what Ephesians chapter 4 was really talking about. He speaks of endeavoring, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we stress all the time, and rightly so, that it's unity of spirit. That is, we're unified in the Spirit's teaching, not in doctrines and traditions of men. And so we trash those if it means they compromise the Spirit's teaching. It's unity of the Spirit. But you know it's spoken of here as something they already have. And he says you need to be diligent to keep, to guard. You have it. Don't let anything else jeopardize it. And that's where verse 2 comes in. You walk worthy of the calling with which you are called in lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, 
bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, notice, in the bond of peace. In Romans 12 and verse 18, Paul said, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as depends on you means when it's coming down to doctrine and sin, you can't live peaceably with everyone if they're not willing to repent and come to the Lord and change their ways. But if it has nothing to do with the revelation of God's will, you let it go. You live peaceably with all men. We need to realize what Christ died for. And if we can realize what Christ died for, then maybe we can avoid these kinds of unnecessary problems. And Romans 14 is all about this idea of, of exercising our liberties in love, which means we won't exercise our liberties if it would cause harm to a brother or sister in Christ. He speaks about eating meats and not eating meats. These things are completely indifferent to God. He's, he's ruled that it's lawful to eat these meats. But you're not better if you eat and you're not worse if you do not eat. So he says in verse 14 of Romans 14, I know him and convinced of the Lord Jesus that there is nothing in clean, unclean of itself. So he's talking about things that have no spiritual significance in themselves. Sin and error are not in this context at all. We'll get that out of the way. These are matters which should not matter to us when it comes down to it. When push comes to shove, we're willing to get out of the way and let Christ be magnified and glorified, not our own thoughts and opinions. So to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean, though. And so if someone else can't in good conscience do this, can't in good conscience eat meat, I'm not going to act in such a selfish way which would cause them to stumble, he says in verse 15. If your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Notice here, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You, you have a test to administer to every conflict you may find yourself in in the local church. Is this about righteousness? That is what God's law dictates and whether I am standing right before Him or whether my brother or sister is standing right before him in the actions that they're taking, does this promote joy, which according to chapter 15 and verse 13, is in believing, that is, submission to the will of God, is it promoting peace? And so we, we, we administer that test, we, we, we make those distinctions, we, we test all things, we hold fast to what is good, we abstain from the evil, but when it's neither good nor evil, I've got to be willing to be malleable and to yield so that there is peace that is maintained. He says in verse 18, He who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue, verse 19, the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. We need to make sure that we're mature enough to distinguish between matters of truth and matters of complete indifference and inconsequence and so far as they are inherently made up. There's been a saying that goes along with this very thought. In faith, in matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. But in all things, love. In matters of faith, there's no tolerance. The things which make for righteousness and peace and enjoy. But in matters of opinion, there is liberty. There's nothing unclean in of itself. So, so I'm not going to have my good spoken of as evil when a brother in good conscience could not do what I'm doing. I'm not going to stand on this hill and cause him to falter in matters of opinion, liberty, but in all things, love. I will do whatever it takes 
to maintain the peace in this congregation and to preserve my brother or sister's soul. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 13. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And you know what? There's a reason why we have these in this order. In order to be acting in this way, you've got to mature in the faith. Because there are well-meaning brethren who are convinced that something should be done a certain way. This is the most careful and pure way to do something. And that thing is actually not dictated by Christ. You know, someone has talked to me about a subject that kind of meets this particular situation and matter. And they were talking about why they believe something is so, because I just want to be extra careful. But you know, that's what the Pharisees did. God didn't say you've got to wash your cups and your meats and your hands in this way, but He does say we've got to be pure ceremonially, so we need to take that extra step, bind it, by the way, so that we can make sure we're pure before God. And the traditions of men supplanted the law of God. And so there is a sense in which, if we're being too careful, we can actually start transgressing the law of God. And the maturity comes with being able to distinguish what God has dictated and what God has not. You apply it anywhere you want. There may be certain things that you do within your marriage to preserve that purity, and they may be wonderful things that you could advise others to do and encourage others to do, but you cannot bind those on other people and suggest that they're in sin because they're not doing it exactly the way that you're doing it. If it works for you, that's great. Another topic that comes to my mind is a, a topic as sensitive as Homeschool versus public school. And I want to tell you, there are good arguments on both sides of the issue. Keep it in your house. Because people, they, they grow angry toward one another. There's strife within congregations about those sensitive topics. You know what? God hasn't said one way or the other. And it is completely within your right to dictate what your family is going to do, but not to make judgments and draw that line in the sand based on other people's lives. If God has not said it in the Scripture, then we need to just leave it alone insofar as judging and binding it on others. And so these are general things. If, if I have those predispositions, that is, I have decided what my attitude is going to be in dealing with my brethren, regardless of what will come up, I, I've decided that I'm going to be forbearing and long-suffering, that I, I'm going to consider myself lower than them and esteem their interests and needs is greater than my own, then something like that comes along. We've already made up our decision. I won't compromise on the truth. And I won't let sin go unchecked. But if it doesn't fit in those categories, I'm, I'm okay with this. And I'm going to, to yield and I'm going to look out for their best interests. I'm not going to make this a problem which causes the church strife and anguish. We distinguish between truth and opinion, between spiritual substance and vain talk, and we disdain the latter. We hold on to the former. This is something the Galatians were warned about in Galatians 5 and in verse 14 when he said that they need to serve one another in love for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you devour one another and bite one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. He says then in verse 26, let us not become consumed provoking one another and envying one another. And wouldn't you know what the next verse in chapter 6 does say that if they are overtaken in a trespass, 
you see that that contradicts the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, then you go to them. Possessing that spirit of gentleness, but you go to them. You address it. All these other things, you leave alone. There are so many things that could be talked about in that particular point. But I want to tell you that the way that you can contribute to this local church is to mature in the faith and possess that purity so that now you are equipped with your knowledge and maturity in the Spirit to be able to discern between the battles you should fight and the battles that aren't really battles at all. They don't qualify. But that only will happen if each individual grows in the will of God. Yes, there's so much that you can be doing for this local church. You don't have to be up here. You don't have to have some public position. You don't have to be a Bible class teacher. You don't have to be active in these kinds of in-your-face ways. You can be active and extremely effective in taking care of your own faith and making sure you have the disposition of Christ so that when these things happen, you can contribute greatly to the work of this local body. We want to offer the invitation for anyone who is here this afternoon who has not obeyed the gospel of Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to submit to the command to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. We can assist you in that this morning if you have that desire. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we extend the invitation to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing.